This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Paul Harding, author of the novel This Other Eden. I think art makes me bigger hearted and bigger sold than I would be otherwise, you know. And so you think if I'm going to spend 10 years with these characters and with this material, I want it to be so that every sentence is a joy to work on. You know, I want every sentence to have its own soul, to have its own world, to have its own reality. We'll be back with Paul Harding after these essential words. Okay, here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast. I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this. Just an I, which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world we have to support what we love and there is an energy there that comes back to us. 
So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and become a supporter of First Draft today. It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And on to the show. My guest today is Paul Harding, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel Tinkers and the novels Enon and This Other Eden, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Award. He is the director of the MFA program in creative writing and literature at Stony Brook University. His new novel, This Other Eden, is inspired by the true story of Malaga Island, an isolated island off the coast of Maine that became one of the first racially integrated towns in the northeastern U.S. The novel follows the ancestral line of formerly enslaved Benjamin Honey and his Irish wife, Patience, who discover an island where they can make a life together in 1792. The couple and their children live through a violent hurricane in the early 1800s that is both legend and fact for their ancestors. The novel primarily takes place in 1912, where Benjamin Honey's descendants and a group of neighbors, though poor, hungry, and isolated, are protected from the hostilities of the mainland. During the summer, a retired and prejudiced schoolteacher turned missionary disrupts the community's balance when he attempts to educate its children and attracts the attention of the mainland authorities who are determined to destroy the balance and calm the neighbors have found on their secluded island. We began the discussion with Paul Harding sharing how he found the historical story about the island. Um, I came upon the historical story of the racially mixed racially integrated um, community on Malaga Island off the southern coast of Maine when I was I was kind of just doing a Google search um, about racially integrated or all black communities in the United States after the Civil War. Um, and so all of these <clears throat> all of these hits came up on the search. Um, and, uh, you know, lo and behold, there are, you know, what seems like hundreds of them, probably more, you know, across all of North America. Um, and one of the first ones to pop up was the story of Malaga, which just immediately sort of resonated with me and in my imagination because it, because it's it was in Maine and I've written, uh, you know, the books have been set in Maine or part, you know, Tinker's the first novel was set in Maine. Um and um, when the families were evicted from the island in the summer of 1912, I think it was um, one of the one of the one of the families was actually committed to a place called the Main School for the Feeble Minded, which um, which sort of served as roughly as the model for the the, the um, institution that one of the characters and Tinkers was in danger of being sent to. So there's just these kind of just these points of connection where I could again feel that kind of resonance and then when I discovered that the um that the first international congress for eugenics was happening in the same summer of 1912 in London um I just thought oh this is like it just kind of sort of sank its hooks into me it's so it's these things with your imagination, you know, when something lays claim to your imagination, it's almost like a dream in the sense that like you don't choose your dreams, your dreams just sort of befall you and haunt you. And I just started. And one of the things that was extraordinary about the article I remember seeing first seeing was um, where there are photographs, there are photographs of the people who lived on the island. It must have been from before 1912. And I always find old photographs just particularly evocative. Um, a lot of tinkers was based on looking at old family photographs, um, you know, back to like, you know, I have collections of old family photographs that are daguerreotypes, you know, they're tin types. So I already have that kind of, that, there's something about the earliest photographs that I always find very evocative. So then once the, the minute I, I had some other things that I was trying to kind of knit together. And so I just thought, I think I'm going to see if a, a, a an historical uh, like a, 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 a very highly fictionalized version of a community like that on an island facing imminent eviction. Um, I, it just started to sort of leak into what I was writing about. Um, 
And one of the the first thing I did when I realized that I wanted to write something like that or do a fictionalized version of it was I stopped doing any research on the actual historical island. Um, and I've said this, you know, a bunch of times, but it's it's true, you know, just there are historical novels and then there are historical novels. And um, I, I, I couldn't write anything like a history of the actual island or a documentary or an historical novel that used, you know, I, I didn't research any of the people's lives I made. You know, I, I, I took a predicament like that of Malaga and then populated it with characters of my own imagining. Um, and then it eventually integrated into the location of my second novel, Enon. Um, it has some connections with Tinkers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it's a it's the way that I write these books is kind of a process of collage. How why were you Googling that information in the first place? <laughs> because as one does, I was reading about this, this is a really incredible book called the fall of the house of labor and it is an incredible you know it's 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 this amazing history of um labor unions after the civil war the you know and labor unions were some of the first institutions in the united states um to advocate th for things like civil rights and for women's suffrage um and uh because you know when you have these large densely populated working class neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You need to, you know, advocate for people, you know, integration for people. How do you make it so that people, these communities can kind of um, exist and, and, you know, coexist. Um, the big example that I remember from that book is actually Oakland, California, you know, um, the, big, the ports. Um, and so I was just thinking about, you know, communities that were integrated in the United States because they integrated communities in the United States traditionally have not remained integrated uh, for one reason or another or through one, uh, you know, power or another sort of coming in and resegregating them. Um, so I was just thinking about there must be this sort of hi history that's probably recorded on like the local level respective local levels of uh of the of such of those communities maybe not big you know big ones like oakland but just you know com communities that were integrated and um and as i've been going around the country and up through canada and new brunswick and nova scotia and pr pretty much everywhere i go people come up to me afterwards and they're like oh yeah no there's this community you know 10 miles up the road or on an island or you know and so that idea of taking kind of the outline of the template of Malaga Island and and integrating it into all of these, you know, like the greater history of the just the United States and race and all that sort of stuff. And then even into because I teach the Old Testament and I teach all these kind of older kinds of um, literatures, just as I it became this kind of occasion to ponder, you know, artistically, poetically, whatever. Um, uh, just the idea of human displacement of, you know, and, and particularly sort of quote unquote marginalized people, you know, in the Bible, you have the sort of take care of the orphan and the widow and the immigrant and all this sort of stuff. Um, and just the people who tend to be sort of brushed aside, whose lives are sort of just brushed aside. Um, and so I just started thinking, oh, you know, this, this could be, you know, there's something in this, um, and so I just started working up this kind of fictionalized version. And like all of my like my other books, it's sort of just like I thought of it as a countdown. It's, it became a little bit more intricate than this, but I just thought basically the book will, my initial conception was the book will kind of start at the beginning of the week, you know, at the, at the start of the week, which will end with them, with the people just leaving the island. And we'll, I'll just see what I find by just sort of, planting myself on the island with these fictional characters and just kind of like living with them for the the years that it took to write the book um and, and just make that the most important thing you know the most important thing was just sort of like these these human lives um you know that are just sw swept aside you know through this kind of segregation when you were reading the nonfiction book and you started googling you know, that uh, racial justice, I think, in Maine, was that because you were looking to write a book? Like what brought you to be reading that 
factual book and be Googling about Maine? Well, so that's what it was, is that it turned, I wasn't Googling about Maine. I was just Googling just about like sort of, hey, what about integrated communities? You know, just like, what's up with that? You know, and sometimes I do that, you know, just, just these weird random keyword searches. Like, I wonder if that's a thing, you know? I mean, in this case, I was like, surely it was a thing that I was just not really particularly aware of um, it, in, in, in terms of the particulars. Um, and, and, you know, and there it all was, I mean, it was everywhere, you know, is it, you know, um, you know, South Carolina and Louisiana and Florida and Nova Scotia up in New Brunswick, you know, all, just all over the place in Maine, just because of my previous sort of, you know, I've kind of, I'm kind of tuned into, you know, when I hear Maine, my ears prick up and I think, oh, Maine, you know, that's sort of, cause my mom's family's from there. And it sort of, I spent a lot of time up there. My, my, Went up there a lot with my grandfather. Um, my grandmother was from uh, Dover Foxcroft, and my grandfather was from Garland, Garland of Dexter, Maine. So it's just, it's just kind of a, in that sense, it's sort of just local, you know, local uh, um, uh, the local ecology, you know, of my imagination and my experience. So that's where then that started to kind of particularize in terms of. Um, finding out about Maine. But then, like I said, you know, once I, I think I read like two or three articles about them, there weren't there, there wasn't that much out there. But then I just stopped doing research. Because again, I didn't want to get so granular that he started taking too many particulars from actual people's lives or trying to like second guess or guess what the actual historical people's lives were like. Um, you know, so I just sort of stopped and took broad outlines, you know, several dozen sort of, you know, striking details, that sort of thing. And just, you know, that became one of a number of things that were sort of getting collaged or woven together. Because um, I'd been working on some other things. There's something that was sort of set in Enon, um, which is the second book, um, second novel I wrote. Um and a whole there's a whole interlude in the middle of this other Eden that's set in Enon, um, because that was some of the earliest writing that I was done the doing. And um, you know, so again, it's just and then there is there is something in there's a kind of like subplot in Tinkers that I had been it was actually in Tinkers um quite late into the stages of writing it, um, which I then ended up cutting out. Um and actually, if you go through Tinkers, you can see kind of like the ghosts of these other characters. So I had this kind of subplot that I was trying to find a home for. So all these things ended up getting sort of mixed together and simmering together for, you know, eight or 10 years um, until this, you know, the book that became this other Eden sort of resolved out of the, the cauldron of different different ingredients. So what do you make of these... I guess, gifts from the universe. I don't know how you would, you know, call it where mm. all of a sudden you're Googling and then it turns out there's something in Maine and you've been writing about Maine for your whole writing career and like all these things sort of coalesce and they're, they are sort of gifts from the universe. Like, how do you explain that? And then how do you teach something like that? Because you teach writing. Well, one of the things I always teach is don't mystify things that are actually not mysteries. Cause that's something that writers love to do. They like to, you know, put that sheen of mystery. Like there are true mysteries in our human experience and what will make them more compelling as mysteries is if they are placed within the context of things that are not mysterious, that are very clear and that you can write about them. They are very material, they're concrete, they're literal. And then these mysterious things become more figurative and more experiential and more subjective. And you start to discuss. And so so one of the things about, you know, these these gifts from the universe is um, you can't explain them. They do not occur within a realm in which explanation is available. So and I, I, I this is sort of how I teach a lot of, you know, writing, which is that, again, it's rule of thumb. It's not like it's but, you know, you let experiment with the idea that. If, if you're writing about the most profound human experiences, you are in the realm of mystery. There's a certain point at which you step over and beyond the threshold where uh, of the of the realm or whatever where explanation is even a possibility. There's a I always feel like I there's a point at which I've passed a boundary where any impulse towards anything like explanation is 
the equivalent of just explaining something away or it's doing violence to the characters or doing violence to the reader, you know, um, because if you bring the reader along and you're standing sort of shoulder to shoulder and, and you just basically saying to the reader, like, look where I got to with this. I think this is pretty, you know, to me, this is pretty astonishing. It's a pretty, you know, the art has brought me somewhere that's that feels like it's true and it's beautiful to paraphrase Keats or whatever. Then the the way to just destroy that experience for the reader is then to tell them what they should make of what you've brought them. You know, so it's just descriptive. It's just you keep describing it since it's character based. It's just I just keep thinking you're asking the characters, what is it like? What is it like? What is it like? Just describe for me what it is like, you know, and then you get into their point of view. But the idea of just giving again, giving the reader giving yourself and especially the characters when you're in there with them, the courtesy and the respect of accounting for their own experiences of these, these mysterious um, uh, visitations or whatever it is, you know? So, so does that mean like that there's something linked for you in the text that's related to your process? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I don't know, you know, the way I experience it is like, there's just no, there's a point at which there's just no distinction, you know, it's all happening through language. You know, I think that's another thing too, which is that, uh, and there's another thing I teach, which is, I think a lot of, I mean, I caught myself a few years ago, unconsciously equating explanation with meaning thinking they were synony- synonymous. And I was just like, that can't be true. Meaning exists everywhere without, you know, so I thought, oh, description can generate meaning, you know, and, you know, and when I'm teaching, one of the things I do to just, cause you know, there's a million different ways that writers can get paralyzed, you, know, you sort of build up all these, but, 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 you know, and then you can't get to the page, you can't get to the language, you can't. So one of the kind of, you know, mantras that I sort of repeat over and over in workshop is, you know, you don't have to know everything before you start writing. You don't have to be able to explain anything. You're just describing, you know, um, and you 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 don't have to be smarter than your characters. In fact, your characters are smarter than you are. They know more about the story you're eventually going to write than you do, as it were. You know, it's kind of a poetic license kind of thing. But the idea of you just I just think of it as you know, I just go climb down into the fictional world and I've got my legal pad and my pencil as it were. And my job is just to sit down and shut up and just look and listen and pay very close attention and then just start finding the language for describing what's going on and what's happening with the characters. And, you know, this idea that you have to be in control of everything, uh, you know, I've just found the more I just just let everything onto the page and don't try to like micromanage everything. So I've got everything in control and it's all organized and it's all, you know, it's just, I love, cause I'm always looking for the point at which like the story and the writing become actually better than anything that I could intellectually think up ahead of time. You know, that because I just feel like if I'm paying attention to the language, if I'm paying attention to the fictional world, the sentences and the language, you know, the language has the capacity to, um, every time you write a sentence, no matter what you're going after, you know, even if you grab exactly what you're going after in, you know, in writing the sentence, the sentence will have like at least 50% more meaning than you even were going for. And you start paying, like, I'm just fascinated with the fact that that the that the, the the stories in the novel just end up having way more meaning than I consciously was ever aware of. But then as the language starts furnishing more and more, you become attentive to that and you just you integrate that into what you're trying to go after. Um and you know, so again, it's just this, it's 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 improvisational, it's interrogative, it's exploratory. Um, and I just, you know, personally, I like feeling like that the story is smarter and better than I am. And that if I just attend to it, um, it'll end up being something way cooler than I initially intended for it. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. So, you know, you write about this island apple island and it's inhabited 
kind of by four units of people, although mm-hmm. you know one person's just solo. But um, you have Esther, Eha, yeah. Charlotte, Tabitha, and Ethan. I would say the main thrust of the story is focused on them, mm-hmm. and they are one right, unit yeah. living on this island. There's the mm-hmm. Larks, um, who yeah. have three children, and they were brother and sister that were married, mm-hmm. and so their kids are definitely at some have some cognitive deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I should say Esther and Eha and Charlotte and Tabitha and Ethan. Esther was forced to she got pregnant by her father. Mm-hmm. You have the McDermott's, Iris and Violet, and they're raising three orphans, and then you have Zachary who lives in a tree and carves um carves yeah. like images yeah. from the old testament. So this is the mm-hmm. population of an island of your island and these mm-hmm. are all your characters. Um plus yeah. you have a a teacher who comes to visit them, a teacher preacher named Matthew Diamond who has mm-hmm. nefarious um intentions even though he doesn't necessarily think so. He comes to yeah. teach yeah. but he's also totally racist. So I'm curious when you began to populate your island does this also come from language? Like, how did you choose your characters? Yeah, I, again, it's this idea of like invoking them. It's a lot of the early stuff is just incantatory. It's trying to see who's there, trying to figure out like how big or how small the cast of characters can be or needs to be. Um, and so for each 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 individual character, but then those sort of if you think of it in those kind of family units or whatever, they each of them kind of arose, um, you know, separately, and then they all kind of got integrated as a larger community. And even the way the book actually ended up, um, if it uh, you know if you look at the book, the opening section is like this very long, you know, 75 pages of just going through here's this family and this is kind of what they do and this is where they're at. And then here's this guy, Zachary, and this is kind of what he does and what he's, and it's almost like this extended opening kind of dramatic, dramatic personae kind of thing, just getting to know the characters. And that's, you know, that retains the way the, the final published book retains some of that, the way that I got to know those characters initially by just kind of telling myself the stories about who they are. Um, but also from the beginning too, what's integrated into the reader's introduction of those fa- of those families is it's in the context of scenes in which Esther, Esther, who is like kind of the matriarch, I think of the island, I think of her as kind of the epicenter of the novel. She's telling these family, these old family tales, these family stories, which ended up, you know, I thought I thought of as being sort of like the low, the, the, the their book of Genesis, you know, their story of um, of their of a local flood that, you know, immediately I was thinking, oh, it's like Noah's Ark, you know, that that kind of thing. And so they get looped in. They immediately get looped into this larger kind of folktale, legendary, mythological kind of um, cycle of stories. Um, and so, and, and, you know, each person, each person, each character, each family sort of took on their own di- different facets of what I was thinking of, you know, so in, in the, in terms of, you know, Esther, I think of her as like an Old Testament prophet. She's n- not unlike her namesake. She's not unlike Hannah. She's not unlike some of the matriarchs, you know, the, um, the, the plot about her father sexually assaulting her and her having a child from him is that is what carried over from um, one of the other protagonists in Tinkers, uh, you know, the the mother in Tinkers, you know, the first novel Tinkers. She originally had the part that was taken out of the novel was that she had had another family. And I have these very early notes about, oh, and actually her mother is raising the a pair, a set of twins from, uh, you know, that she had previous to being the, you know, the, the, the mother of the family and tinkers um, uh, because she had to flee because those twins were the product of uh, sexual assault from her father and her mother is raising the twins and her mother murdered the father slash her husband. Um, and I just had this image of her sitting in a rocking chair on a bluff, you know, on the bluff over which she pushed her husband. And so I just had that kind of hanging around um and you know so then when esther you know sort of 
arrived, I thought, I think she might be that character, you know. I think the the Lark family, that, that's a, a very much a collage of some stuff that I remember reading in um, in uh, some of the stories by Sarah Orne Jewett, who wrote the novel in the country of po pointed furs. There's a story about a, a a guy who lived out in the Maine woods um, with his sister. And when his sister died, he was so bereft and it sort of blew his mind um, that he, to sort of assimilate her or whatever. He, they, when the, people in the story find him he's wearing her dress he's living in her clothes and it almost has become his sister um and I, and then i was also thinking in terms of like the brother marrying the sister etc you have you know in the old testament one of the things that's always going on with israel is that they're on the verge of extinction that they're always on the verge of being exterminated and there you have all these points in the old testament where all is almost lost. And then what happens is you have these bizarre stories of like Lot and his daughters, you, you know, and the daughter saying, there's not going to be anybody left unless we sleep with our father. So I had this idea of if, you know, it, it, again, the angle in which, you know, the facet in which you might think of that island as being like Noah's Ark, there would be the problem, of, you know, what if you were on Noah's Ark, but you couldn't get off? You couldn't get off the ark. So there would be this involution and there would be this. So it would result in that. And that kind of is a strand that goes through the whole book and sort of ends with this kind of vision that Esther has about everybody just being compressed into this one woman, you know, finally. Uh, and anyways, you know, these just these all these old kind of legendary kind of folktale sorts of things. Zachary Hand to God. I had just been, uh, I'd been up in Toronto at a, at the um, Authors Festival. I was at the Museum of Ontario, and they had these incredible collections of ivory carvings from the Middle Ages, and they were beautiful, intricate carvings of um, of Old Testament scenes. So I just thought, you know, wouldn't that be cool if somebody carved those things into a tree? <laughs> You know, I just said, here he goes. And I just started writing about like, you know, I just had the carvings in front of me. And I just imagined somebody kind of doing this as an act of obedience or prayer or whatever. And you just sort of see what these things give you, you know, and when they finally catch, they sort of take on a life of their own. Yeah, it seems like you cannot, you couldn't write if you weren't engaged in the world in a certain way. Like the world is giving you so much. Yeah. And I, I, and that's, you know, different writers get that, you know, one, that's one of the things I say when I, you know, all the time in class, like, I'm just telling you anecdotally how it works for me. This is not how it has to work for you to be a good or real writer, because, you know, if you're, if you're in school or you're taking classes, what you do is just listen to all your different, you know, the, one of the things to take from your teachers is that, if you listen, most of your teachers will tell you, you know, will tell you very different ways that they go about finding their best stories, their best material, as it were. And what you do is you get to pick and choose or try different things until you find out what works for you. Because the way that I do it would drive some people absolutely insane. I have no outlines, no plan, no nothing. I fly by the seat of my pants. I don't have a compass. I like being out in the middle of the ocean and not knowing where I am. I like just kind of each sentence coming out of like a black velvet background you know i don't know it's just it's a thing it's a, it's 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 a it's a matter of taste it's a matter of disposition um so i love kind of like like productive inefficiency or something like that i love trying and testing everything out throwing everything together letting it mix up letting these things intermingle for years and years and trying to see how they whether and if they do, how they intermingle and synthesize into something kind of unexpected and um, uh, something that, again, I, I I wouldn't be able to come up on my own just trying to think things up. You know, they, they are these kind of happy accidents, as it were. Why um Why is the Old Testament so interesting to you? Just it sort of circumstantially, incidentally, I mean, I think that a lot, I mean, I guess it's simpler than it's, you know, just literally what happened was that the first time I ever decided to try to write a story and then 
take a class in creative writing. I took a two-week class, a summer class at Skidmore College um, uh, during the New York summer, uh, New York State Summer State Writers Institute. Beautiful, you know, incredible um, writing conference that's been going up there for for decades. And um, just by the luck of the lottery, Marilyn Robinson walked in and was teaching my first, you know, taught that first two-week class. Um, and it was, I mean, it really was, you know, <laughs> most of my life is marked by the the acute lack of epiphany. <laughs> you know, I just walk around going, I don't know what the hell is going on. I'm in the presence of great meaning, none of which I have access to. But Marilyn came into the room and just like within 10 or 15 minutes, I was just like, that's the life of the mind and the soul that I want for myself. That's it. Just the this, the level on which that she was thoughtful and thought about art and thought about the world, et cetera, et cetera, was just astonishing to me. So I ended up being lucky enough to go out and study with her out at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, um and then um, ended up over the, you know, over the course of the years since we just, you know, became friends and periodically see one another and have dinner together and talk and all this sort of stuff. But later when I went back to teach at Iowa, there's a certain point at which I thought, well, you know, she's somebody, she's, you know, I can't think of anybody I admire more than her. Um, and if I asked her to account for what, you know, she would say it was the source of her inspiration and her best art. She would say her religion, and I grew up without religion. I was not antagonistic towards it. I was just sort of innocent of it in that strict sense of, I didn't know anything about it, you know. Uh, and so I thought as, almost as a courtesy to her, I should read the Old Testament, you know. And uh, so I, uh, and, uh, and I should read some good theology. Uh, and uh, so actually, you know, at the time she was giving classes in the Old Testament at the local church in the basement of the local church. So I remember is I remember being in there, you know, studying the Old Testament. It was Maryland, a bunch of people from the congregation, but it's, you know, I think like Adam Hazlett, then all Adam Hazlett was it was there. Peter Orner was there. I think you know, <laughs> we had the, like like we, you know, and there, so there's something wonderful about it. And I just every time I went back to teach at Iowa later, if she was giving the Old Testament class, I'd just sit in on that seminar until the last time that she was teaching it, she had something happen where she was suddenly she had, she was, she was going to be away for four or five weeks in the middle of the semester. And she called me you know, like on a Sunday night and said, will you teach my old Testament class for me? And you start on Wednesday. And I, you know, the, before the normal rational part of me could just say, no, I just said, yes, you know, just say yes, get yourself, let it put yourself on the line. And, you know, it, I, I said, what books, what books do I need to teach? And I think it was like Isaiah and Samuel and Kings, you know, which was mind blowingly complex and amazing. But and so, boy, I, I tell you, you know, I brewed a pot of coffee. And so, and so part of it, so it started off just as simply as that. But then when I actually started reading the Old Testament, I was like, this is, this is the most incredible anthology of sort of wisdom literature and poetry. And, you know, and, and then I started reading, you know, serious theology, like Karl Barth and that sort of stuff. I just found, I mean, I had to get over the idiom, you know, like at first I was very self-conscious, but like the blood of Christ and, you know, both, you know, all this sort of stuff, you know, you know, that's, that's the idiom in which these amazing cosmological visions are organized and, 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 I, you know, and they've just sort of laid claim to me ever since, you know, so I teach the old Testament. I sort of a B back and forth between teaching the old Testament and teaching Shakespeare. Um, and partly because you know, Shakespeare's is, is, is a genius, even though everybody says he is right. But also because Shakespeare uses tons of the Bible in his plays. And so that's an occasion to talk about how we use um, and borrow, you know, what influences us and how we incorporate it into our own art, you know, and identify ourselves and our, you know, writing places us in certain traditions. Can you, do you envision that Old Testament stories, maybe it's literal, maybe it's figurative, maybe it's symbolic, will continue to feature in your writing life? 
I at this point I can't see how they wouldn't, you know. Um, there's so many tropes and idioms and master plots and ideas from the Old Testament. And what I find is that the likely source for them, because there's the Bible everywhere, you know, it, it is that is the Old Testament. But a lot of the Old Testament is actually repurposed and um, much older um, Babylonian and Egyptian legend. So there is a certain point where you're just like, oh, these are like, these are like archetypal human plots, you know? And if you can trace them from Egypt and Babylon through, through the Old Testament, through these other, all these different traditions, and then you see Shakespeare picking those traditions up. And then you see, you know, Melville and Emily Dickinson and, you know, and, and then, you know, the, and you read Toni Morrison and you read all these, and it's just sort of like, there is this kind of astonishing through line continuous it's uninterrupted of just you know different generations and different cultures and different you know whatever um uh, of artists who you know look at the kind of inherit these traditions and innovate and change and use them and rearticulate them to express things that then if it, if it works you end up with works of art that are both totally of their time and totally contemporary and speak to the, you know, the generation at hand, um, but also are kind of timeless and eternal, you know, at least in human terms. Um, and so I'm just fascinated with things like that. You know, the idea that the idea that, you know, in, in the, in this present moment, the reader reading, you know, the novel becomes contemporary contemporaneous with the characters, with the author, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's something kind of something of eternity that I think art can get at um, that happens over the occasion of, you know, like writing and reading literature. So because you're because this story has both referred to and um, metaphorical connections to the Old Testament, was it clear to you what the title should be? Like, how did you come up with this other Eden? <laughs> the title is actually from Shakespeare. It's a it's a line uh, that John of Gaunt, a character in Richard II, utters. England is you know on the brink of civil war and is doing all these kind of misadventures in France, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he just feels like the the kingdom is kind of on the brink. Um, and so he has this lamentation, this amazing kind of soliloquy monologue, where you know he says you know like basically, oh England, you know this. Island of Kings, the scepter dial, the seat of, Mar you know, I can't, I don't have it all that at my fingertips, but he's sort of lamenting, you know, the, like the history and the richness of England's an island, you know? Um, and, you know, he says, you know, it's just this long recitation of, of qualities of England. One of which is he calls it this other Eden. And that soliloquy ends basically with him saying all of this sold for a leap, a tenant farm. You know, just like it's just been leased out by landlords, that sort of thing. And I just thought that's something about that line that is essentially kind of the spirit in which when Esther is, you know, leaving the island and sort of is, is thinking about that, there's just again that. And she, and she, I gave her, you know, through her father, her problematic, very awful monster of a father, um, one of the beautiful things that he bequeathed her was knowledge of the Bible and Shakespeare. She, you know, and so she, she knows her Shakespeare. Um, so that is a line that occurs to her at, toward the end of the book. So it's something that would be kind of fetched from her own repertoire of experience and, and, and readings. I, I have this vision of you. Like if I had to draw a cartoon of our conversation of all these things you're telling me, that you actually sit around with like this tinfoil hat with like two antennas on it and your antennas <laughs> are like, I love it. Are, are getting all of this information from the, you read and it's just like tuning in and there's all these waves coming in, but that, that antenna are bringing in all of your content. It certainly kind of feels like that. Like if, if, if the listeners could, you know, if I, I could flip my camera around and you could see like literally the pile of books and art books and you know whatever you know just all the stuff that's behind me um 
And I just, you know, I just, I, I do like <laughs> to just sort of wallow in it all. And just, you know, what, you know, again, I, I, things that I find beautiful, oh, I'd like that in my art, you know, and it's, you know, the idea, so you put it in, and, but it has to, it has to evolve, it has to simmer, it has to, it has to be sort of transfigured so that you're not just mere, merely being imitative. You know, you're not just copying that. It's, it has to be sort of transformed by the way that it interacts with and synthesizes with everything else that you've put in alongside it. So that it sort of comes out in a way that, again, is that kind of it's simultaneously totally recognizable and so pleasing just to people who recognize it. Right. Um, but also totally, you know, it's, it's the world refracted or it's sort of prismatic it's like the world and all these things refracted through one another in a way that is at once totally familiar but hopefully sort of new it's a new way like i look my favorite books are you know i come out of them saying i don't quite know what happened but boy something just happened you know something real just happened there's something you know that art does that that like that was an experience in and of itself and what i always you know one of my tests for you know do i like the book is do I feel like when I finish reading it after the first time, literally I'm at a loss for what to do other than to just go back to page one and start again and go back through it and see what it's like to go back through it a second time. So, yeah, I mean, that's just sort of, I say that to all my students like, you got to, you have to actually, there has to be some, I mean, you have to be utterly serious. You have to be utterly courteous. You have to be totally respectful of the world, the universe, human beings, all that sort of stuff. But you also have to bring, you know, joy to writing. You have to actually, you know, the, the, you know, I, you know, I think art makes me bigger hearted and bigger soul than I would be otherwise, you know, as so we think if I'm going to spend 10 years with these characters and with this material, I want it to be so that every sentence is a joy to work on. You know, I want every sentence to have its own soul, to have its own world, to have its own reality, you know, as opposed to just sort of like, oh my God, I'm just, you know, this is, I mean, a lot of it is just banging your head against the wall, sort of, you know, Melville famously called writing Moby Dick ditcher's work. You know, there is sometimes that sense of like, just get the shovel, climb back in the ditch and keep, but, uh, you know, I just got it so that I'm working on the level of language and the words themselves. So everything is always just fascinating and engrossing, you know, to me. Yeah. The first time we talked, which was 10 years ago, you talked uh, in the beginning about, you know, what you were doing, it was, you know, you had just sold like a thousand copies of Tinkers. I think that was like your contract and you had faced so much rejection and you were like, I, I'm, I'm happy if this is just my path in life to, to do this art, whether it sells or not. And that literary fiction is kind of talking to all the other books you've read, but it sounds like now and maybe you just didn't articulate it then that that literary fiction is talking to all the art you've consumed. It's not just other books. Yeah. And it's probably all the history I've consumed, all the experience I've consumed or, you know, just things of substance or things of interest that feel irreducible, that feel um, authentic. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's just like I think of, I'm an artist. I make works of art, you know, and so all of this is. The, you know, within the sponsored, within the idiom or whatever of aesthetics, you know, thinking about what's beautiful. Sometimes what's beautiful is, you know, is again, that Keatsian, you know, it's beautiful because it's true, but sometimes what's true is awful, you know, in the sense of awe, you know, this it's awful or it's terrible. Um, but I think, you know, I, I trust readers and I just feel like they'll just know if a, if a sentence strikes a false note in terms of the, the, the spirit anyways, of the, that the art is engaged in. Um, so that's what I was talking to a class yesterday saying, one of the things that drives me crazy is when fiction writers get up at readings and it's, it's kind of this cocky sort of cliche thing, but they, I've, I, if I had a dollar, you know, for every time I heard it, you know, the fiction writer gets up to the podium and says, well, I, the reason I became a fiction writer is because I'm a pathological liar. And everybody sort of laughs and it's, it, and, you know, it's kind of trivial because I feel like every sentence I write is true, has to be true, right? It's just that every sentence I write is not factual, right? And I think that's another, like I, I caught myself thinking of, 
explanation as a synonym for meaning, I caught myself thinking of truth as a synonym for fact, when in fact, literary truth is imagine is, is an is imaginative truth it's not factual truth it's not it doesn't take its truth or its authenticity They're, those things are not based on or dependent upon fact we'll be back with this interview in just a moment remember you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of first draft at patreon.com/firstdraftwriters can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Sure. So as we, I've been saying, I, I teach Shakespeare a lot. And one of my favorite, I think maybe my favorite Shakespeare play is Lear, King Lear. And this is just a, a at the very end of the play where King, the, the, the play begins with King Lear exiling um, one of his three daughters who Cordelia, who proves to be actually the most loyal and loving child that he had and um a lot of the play is tracing him going from this just impetuous entitled impatient splenetic king who just you know it, it just it, it, it is is just um just kind of a terror to everybody that he knows to him sort of in the course of becoming mad or whatever um it's sort of i actually had esther in the in the in in this other Eden say a line that I, I sort of finally kind of came up with after teaching Lear for a long time, which is um, poor Lear, his old, poor old Lear, his hard heart only softened in the breaking. And so at the, you know, his, his heart gets broken, but then that lets him sort of see kind of, you know, the love that, of, so this is at the end where it's tragic and things are not going to go well for them, but this is him. He finally, he basically want, he gets down on his knees in front of his daughter and is begging her for forgiveness. And this is his um, his final kind of like his vision of what he was interstitial. This is this is like the one two the two seconds where he kind of has this is what his vision for what their life would be. But it's you know it evaporates in the wake of him uttering it. You know, but he says, "Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage." When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news. And we'll talk with them too, who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out, and take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. And we'll wear out in a walled prison, pacts and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. Do you want to say anything else about that? I don't know. As I'm reading it, I think it will tell tales. And that's what I think also of all these characters doing is being interested in their begats, you know, um, and the and the sense of reading stories and telling stories and preserving history through these kind of quote unquote folk you know, stories, but also through books and literature and art and all that sort of stuff. Can you read a passage you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you liked. Yeah, sure. And this is, so this is just a paragraph right at the end of the uh, end of the book. It might be, I th yeah, they're actually, this is, a, this is when um, Esther and the rest of the family are on the raft with the boat, all, their house all packed up. And it kind of goes back to that sense of, uh, of uh, the threat of extinction, the threat of extermination, the idea that we should be fruitful and multiplying, but actually what we're doing is we're 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 condensing into one this one person. We're sort of uh, collapsing back into this original mother, as it were, in her conception of it. Uh, Esther had heard a visiting relative once talk about going to a big reunion on her husband's side of the family. There were more than a hundred people, she'd said. Many of them looked exactly alike, but many of them you could, you'd never tell were related. A family so big you had to have special reunions of them. They'd spread so far and wide. What it must have been like to have a family that large and get back together with them like that. Their family on the island was always so small and seemingly getting smaller, compacting, members converging into one another, 
So few of them, they'd begun to be more than one relation to one another at a time. Men being their daughters, fathers, and husbands, too. Mothers being their sons, sisters. The family condensing, imploding, fewer and fewer people becoming heavier and heavier until one last woman would stand, dark and wholly compacted, herself begot, she her own, her own mother, she her own daughter and sister, all in her one impossibly condensed and sorrowful body, leaden and involute, so that so when she lay down to die, no one would need to bury her. She would just sink into the ground like a millstone plunging through silty water. Do you want to say anything about that? I, you know, that's kind of like one of her kind of final concluding. It's almost like a prayer. It's almost like a lamentation. You know, it's definitely meant to be kind of heightened biblical sort of, you know, um, but also poetic, you know, that it's figurative. It's, it's, it's her sense of, you know, kind of being the matriarch and being, you know, um, uh, the last matriarch on that island. And now, you know, the sense that they're they're going back out into the wilderness and who knows, they may be dispersed, you know. But it's it's just her her sense of, of uh, you know, her, like her generate, her localized generational sense of kind of just what, you know, what, uh, um, what their family is facing. Where do you write? I write anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> One of the things I learned when my, you know, when my wife and I first had a family and I was teaching full time during the day and part time at night was I learned how to um, just have a pen and whatever piece of paper was at hand or flip open the laptop and just work on whatever sentence was at hand. So that, and that's actually just the actual technical skill that, that you can learn, which is just how to go right down into the zone for writing. Um, so sort of like, I, I, I'd say you know, sort of a, the the idea that like the muse isn't here today. I'm, I cannot write. Like that just got burned away instantly, you know? Um, and so now, I mean, I said it before, it's actually true. People almost can't believe it, but, uh, but I wrote a lot of the earliest stuff, the scraps and stuff that got collaged together um, on Post-its. You know, and I periodically just like grab them all up and, you know, kind of put them in notebooks and then uh, enter them into the like, like a master word document. But I, I can I will and can and do write sort of anywhere. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, in a, well, I was going to say in a former life, but I still I played drums. Um, and so I uh, over the course of the pandemic, I got lured into buying myself a new drum set. I didn't play, and I actually just went down and started teaching myself kind of all the stuff I wish I had learned when I was younger, and actually playing in bands and touring around. Um, and it's just beautiful because you do. I get like I get word blindness. You get hysterical. Like I can't think about words anymore. I don't even know what they mean. You just go down and start playing the drums, and it just loosens everything up and refreshes that part of your brain. So I definitely. I, I flee to the sanctuary of my drums. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, Elizabeth McCracken. Uh, she was one of my teachers uh, and she just, um, I, I go for, I go as long as I can sort of evading my agent and my editor. I don't want anybody to see, I try to go as long as I, I try to get as close to having a manuscript that I think you could pretty much put, slap a cover on either side of it and just put it out. Um, I don't like people wandering around in my house while I'm building it, <laughs> partly because to me, I experience it as noise. I want to hear the characters. I want to be, you know, I think the manuscript is its own best authority. Um, but then when I think, oh, I think maybe this might be as much as I can do with it. Um, it's Elizabeth McCracken. I send it to her and and she because she is just such she's a genius. She's an incredible. Right. I mean, just world class writer. And um, she is a BS detector like nobody else. <laughs> uh, you know, she knows when there's a false note. She's, you know, got perfect pitch and all this. Sort of, and so she's just honest. I just trust her. I trust her in a way that I just wouldn't, you know, especially with the first other human being to really read that. I trust her like no one else. How have you dealt with rejection? I've rejected it. <laughs> I just learned, you know, when Tinker's... When I sent tinkers around and it would get everything from the most like Xeroxed, you know, form letter, like thanks, but no thanks to, you know, these letters sort of like nobody wants to read this kind of stuff. 
I just found myself not recognizing the kind of book that I would want to write or read in a lot of those rejection letters. So I just said, no, thank you. And that's advice I'm not going to take. I disagree, Respe- respectfully or not. <laughs> what is your favorite word? Soul. Thank you so much for your time in this conversation. I'm so grateful. Oh, thank you. I'm likewise grateful. This is the, the, the day and the week is only going to go down from here, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's been wonderful. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, just such a, such a great opportunity to be able to talk with you. If you like today's show with Paul Harding, author of the novel This Other Eden, check out my interview with him on his novel Enon. We talked about language, writing for writing's sake, and nonlinear narratives. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com, and I just updated the website so you can more easily search and listen to each episode. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, Diane Seuss, and Antoine Wilson. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.